This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Has Spotify tuned into a better way for companies to take their stocks public? And the Trump administration this week announced plans to relax car emissions rules. But with car makers investing tens of billions of dollars in electric vehicles, does that even matter? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hello. So, Jen, let's get on to a topic you've been covering, Spotify. Its shares now trade on the New York Stock Exchange after the music streaming service's much-hyped, well, I suppose we should call it a non-IPO, IPO on Tuesday this week. It was one of these, well, I say one of these, it, it did a direct listing, as it's called, which reduces the role investment banks play and the fees they get, and basically allows buyers and sellers to link up with each other. Did it work, Jen? Well, I think... Technically, yes, it worked. It went off f- pretty much without a hitch. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people were, myself included, said that there's going to be a lot of volatility, that shares would be jumping around. And, and part of the reason for that was because of the direct listing, there was no price to go off of. And we didn't know how many shares were going to be traded. All right. So let's just step back a bit. So Spotify decides to go public. Right. But issues the normal IPO method, which is to get underwriters from Wall Street in, and they do a variety of things to, to right from the start. So it's roadshows, they get the price sorted out, which may change at the last minute, but they're there to make sure that they listen to buyers and they listen to sellers. They think, right, we can start the auction or we can start the day with a price of, say, let's say 20 bucks a share, and then the first trade is. Right. In theory, 10. they're trying to make it go as smoothly as possible. Right. And they also get involved on that first day of trading to, to you know, uh, keep the stock price up if it looks like it's going to drop. Right. It doesn't always work. Right. Spotify chooses a different method. They And also, let's go back. Also, the, the, the usually in an IPO, a company will list 10, 15, 20 percent of its shares. Yeah. They say exactly how many shares they're going to list. Right. And, the, and the, they can't sell any more for three months, six months, whatever it is. Um, this is very different. So talk us through what Spotify said it was going to do, roughly speaking. Okay. So the way Spotify worked, they basically took it directly to investors. They said, we're not having bankers. We're not doing any of this. I mean, they did have bankers. But, but not doing the whole Not doing the whole, you know, big process. So basically what would happen is no price set, things would just start trading. So the volatility comes in because there is no price. So people are trying to determine what that price should right. be. And you have to match buyers and sellers. We don't – that was, wasn't was done you know, yeah, prior. Yeah, it's, it's often the bank's biggest role to say, okay, we've got all these orders coming in. Let's say Fidelity, to choose an investor, wants 200 million shares. Well, there's so many orders, we can only give you 10 million. 
uh, or 100 million. So there's none of that. It's all just free for all. Yeah, it's all free for all. There's no lockup period for employees. Um, so, And a lot of the company was eligible to be traded on the first day, right? R- roughly 90%. Okay, that's a lot more than normal. Yeah. So, so all these aspects are kind of lead to potential volatility and a roller coaster of, of, of a share price. And basically what happened was it opens at roughly, I believe, um, almost 100. It was like 165, something right. like that. And um, and it seemed pretty s- smooth. I mean, it was going up. And, and that was above, what was the, the one of the last prices before, the, the always sort of gray market prices we the talk gray, about? Yeah, it was like $132 was, was you know, but th- there were big swings in those private yeah. transactions. So it was kind of hard to get a fix on what exactly was going to happen. But now so. it's like, it's, it's still trading above that 132-ish. It was 140 last time I checked on right, day two, right? Um, which is nicely above, but way below uh, where it was trading on the first day. Right. So what does it tell us about the process, if, if anything? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Sorry. Yay. But I think that's the answer because we don't know really what this company is going to do over time. So just because it pops or the, the share price mm. goes up initially, it certainly doesn't mean that that's, that's where it's going to stay. So when Facebook went public in 2012, there were technology issues with NASDAQ. So that was a mess that day. It was a mess. Then their share price cratered more than 50% five months after its debut. That goes down to, what, 20 bucks a share? Something like that. And the reason was because investors were worried about Facebook being able to make revenue on uh, smartphones. Right. Mobile revenue, essentially. They have since recovered, right? More or less. <laughs> so, leaving aside the past couple of months, <laughs> right. weeks of problems, yes. Um, so you just don't know what what's going to happen. Like Snap mm. is another great example. It popped, you know. It mm. I don't think it's above its price of seventeen dollars. No, it it's has not. Yeah. Um, basically, the fundamentals are: Spotify is a really great product. Streaming music is the future, but there are lot of issues with it. One is that they owe the record labels a lot of money for licensing. And their revenue growth is stalling, or they're, you know, it's not growing as quickly as it once had been growing. And you have to get more subscribers. Right. And I don't think it's profitable. So these are big issues that a company has to tackle. So that that does bring up the broader question, I suppose, of should we care at all about how any IPO goes beyond, you know, whether there are technical issues or whether you just don't find the right investors as, as, an, as an investment bank or otherwise. I mean, Google's another great example, isn't it, right? It went public um, in well, way back in the 2003, 2004, whenever it was, using a Dutch auction process, which is another way of trying to match buyers and sellers. And I think the price dropped after that as well. I mean, I think Google's went a little more smoothly than Facebook. Um, but yeah, I have to agree with you. It's sort of like when Apple unveils a new product or something like that, and everybody goes bonkers, and your Twitter feed is clogged with you know what kind of food they're serving and the music, and it just seems like this much to do about nothing really. And I feel like the same thing happens with IPOs. Like everyone looks to it as okay, what is this an indication of? This means tech is back, Silicon Valley is hot. You know, this all these other unicorns are going to do equally as well. I mean, who knows, really? And what's interesting about Spotify, I have to give them credit for saying, like, listen, we don't want to do this the traditional way. We want to go out there and tell our employees, you don't have to sit on your shares for six months. There's no lockup period. 
go out and sell it. Republic, Republic. And, you know, or, or not. Or not. And if we have to find our valuation a lot faster, then so be it. And I think that is really admirable in what they're doing. And if you look at the traditional IPO, you know, it's not always the half the time the investment bankers don't price it correctly. So I could see why this might be tempting to mm. other firms saying like, hey, I'm going to pay all these big fees. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one, one of the big problems that um, companies, especially tech companies, I think have always talked about on IPOs is, look, yes, we get the idea. You leave a little bit on the table because you want to give investors a little bit of a pop. But we're giving these guys up to seven, these investment bankers up to 7% of the um, of the amount raised as an underwriting fee. Yes, you organize the roadshow. Yes, you do that and the other. But end of the day, it's how we perform as a company longer term that counts. So the only reason, I suppose, then to have investment bankers involved is if you as a company really need to raise money or will need to come back quickly. Like if you think, I need to sell shares on the, as an IPO um, today so that I can then come back because I will need to have a reference point to raise money in three months' time because I'll need more money. Right. Um, so I need to have a very good, well-run process. But there's no, as you said, there's never a guarantee that investment banks are going to get it right. And sentiment comes to play as well. You were saying this before the, the Spotify IPO. With Drop, Dropbox was a great example of a company that you know wasn't particularly doing great on revenue growth either from compared to where it was. And yet its IPO went well at a time when Facebook and others were suffering. And that gave the likes of Spotify a, 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 a maybe more belief that their IPO or non-IPO in this case would work. So often it's not about investment banks. No. And I think, well, I think really we need to just check back in a year and see where Spotify is. So that's the way to work out whether this IPO, it's not even the IPO or the non-IPO, whether this company is a good company to be in the public domain. Right. And, and we'll, or, or is it, it, do they deserve a valuation of over $20 billion or whatever it is? Great. Jen, thanks very much for that. We will definitely be back on Spotify and IPOs in general, I'm quite sure. This week, Scott Pruitt, the controversial administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, announced plans to scrap an Obama-era rule forcing automakers to pretty much double the average fuel efficiency of new cars to around 50 miles per gallon by 2025. All right, so Anthony, you've been following this. I don't know about you, but this seems completely counterintuitive to how people buy cars and what they want in a car. So yeah. what what is happening? Well, um, this... Uh, to be honest, this is nothing but politics, right? Okay. So although well, I say that, the, the decisions around this are nothing but politics, but it does have broad implications way beyond that. Um, Scott Pruitt uh, and the Trump administration in general are doing all they can to undo anything from the Obama administration uh, that they think uh, smacks of rubbish. Okay. Right? And a lot of that is, uh, certainly from the EPA's point of view, is, hang on, let's put business ahead of the environment. They would probably dispute that, but I wouldn't. Okay, so let me ask you this. I'm a car maker. Wouldn't I want my cars to be more fuel efficient? Isn't that something of uh, an advantage? Absolutely. And you, know, you can then say to, your, to the buyers, look, you can use this car. It will run for longer. It will use less fuel. It will cost you less. All fantastic selling points. The issue for car makers is, can we do this uh, quickly enough and at a cost that makes sense to us and the consumers over a certain period of time. And they actually have been doing um, a pretty good job over the past 15 years of improving fuel efficiency across all of their products. I mean, it helps if you get rid of the, you know, eight miles a gallon Hummer or whatever it was doing um, years ago that GM used to used to have. Um, but even, um, you know, Ford, for example, with its F-150, the best-selling truck in America for 
four billion years, it seems like, uh, by using aluminium, and I will call it aluminium, not aluminium, uh, in its in its, uh, ears. its model. Yes, I'm sorry, but that that helps reduce fuel costs for the consumer. Um, so all these kind of things ha- help, as well as fine tuning the engines. Everything you can think of will help. The question is, um, is it right and proper for a government to say? We should put that target for the average of the fleet at 50 miles per gallon or 45 or 40. What makes most sense from everyone's perspective? Because as much as I think it should be about the environment, you do have to build in the, to an extent, what can industry realistically be expected to achieve? Okay, so that's, let's, that's a great next question. Could the industry realistically achieve 50 miles per gallon uh, by 2025? I mean, was that not a realistic target? In America, it's hard. Uh, and it's hard for the very simple reason that trucks dominate and they've got more and more important trucks and SUVs, which uh, consume more gas, even though um, efficiency, fuel efficiency has improved for these products. Um, they're still they still guzzle more car, more gas than than cars do very simply because they're bigger and heavier. Right. So you look at the latest statistics. I think GM and Ford in the first quarter of this year uh, sold. I think 80 percent of the cars and, and trucks they sold were SUVs and trucks. Right. So I think the average for the industry a year or so ago was like 45 to 50 percent was was trucks and SUVs. So that's coming way up. And GM and Ford and Chrysler especially rely on them, whereas they, they, you, know, you look at the Toyotas of this world, they don't sell quite as many trucks. So that's one of the biggest problems. Right. So how can you get that up? And you know, Fiat Chrysler with Sergio Marchionne basically said two or three years ago, we're not even going to bother trying to sell cars anymore. It's too inefficient for us to make them. It's going to get even harder now if the Trump administration forces you to bring more back from Mexico, uh, more production back from Mexico to the US. So why don't we just concentrate on what makes us the most money, regardless of everything else? Okay, I feel like we have seen the script before. Mm-hmm. So let's t- take us through the, the historical significance of this. Well, when they if, were bulking up on SUVs yeah. and then the crash happens. Yeah, exactly. So you go back a decade. Now, I wouldn't. I don't think they were selling quite as many SUVs and trucks. I'd have to say, as a percentage of their overall sales, I really haven't looked at those numbers. But certainly, if you go back to two thousand six, two thousand seven, trucks were all the rage. Now, in part, it's because you had a huge housing boom as well, which you don't have now. Um, so there are a lot of builders out there buying trucks and especially trucks, but also SUVs as well. But also, yeah, the general public loves having big cars. I just was in Texas last week on vacation, and the amount of times I was walking out and found that the hood of the car in front of me, or the truck in front of me, was higher than my head, and I'm not a short person. Um, so, you know, America loves this type of car, um, which makes it very difficult. But yes, you go back 10 years ago, and, Ameri- and America's big automakers were so reliant on these to try and get somewhere near half-decent earnings or even earnings of any sort because they were losing money everywhere else, um, that when the crash hit and builders got in trouble, gas prices became an issue, uh, and people had no money to spend on the bigger cars and trucks, um, they didn't have really the product to sell. So their uh, overall sales slumped, and two of them, Chrysler and General Motors, went bankrupt. Okay. So as you said in your opening statement, basically, that this is political. This is all politics. Probably the car makers lobbying arms are mm-hmm. trying very hard to get this regulation trimmed back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they lobbied within days of Trump winning the election. Yeah. So they're, they're out there trying to get this rule off the books. Um, what, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, what's meant to happen is that the EPA comes up with a new target. And look, there are always reasons to look at a target. I don't, I don't think the target itself going from, say, if, you were, if this ended up going to 45 miles a gallon or 40, 
That's kind of fine. I think I'm taking this from someone at the EPA yesterday, one of the lobbyists who was talking along with Pruitt. That's a weird thing. There was nothing but car industry folks around him, one of them introducing him, in fact, which which is another issue we can get to later if you want. But um, anyways, one chap said, look, there is a lot more fuel efficiency and, or emissions gains to be had from taking a car from 10 to 20 miles a gallon than from 40 to 50 miles per gallon. Now, if that's true, then that quantum of difference at the higher end doesn't matter as much. Um, and you know, there's, But there's also nothing wrong with being aspirational and saying, let's shoot for 50 miles a gallon, right? Um, so from a car industry's point of view, this gives them some breathing room. It allows them to sell more cars uh, at current rates, SUVs especially, which brings in more money, which they can then spend on electrification, autonomous driving, all these kind of things, and even on improving fuel efficiency of, of gasoline power cars. So in some respects, that extra breathing room could end up helping, which also may be a good thing. And I have no big issue with that as long as it's a short-term issue. Okay. So this is the a final question here. What can go wrong with being tied up with the industry like that? Well, all you've got to do is look back to the crisis, the financial crisis a decade ago. And you look to financial regulators, one of them, the Office of Thrift Supervision. It started talking about those it was meant to be overseeing as customers. Right, once you do that, I mean, what is it? what's, what's the, the, the biggest mantra we know about customers? The customer is always right. I mean, come on, if you're a regulator, the idea is that you put a stop to bad things they're doing rather than saying, allow us to help you. And this is what the EPA is now doing. It's a helping industry as opposed to looking first and foremost at um, at, at its remit, which is Environmental Protection Agency. There's nothing wrong with looking at other ways of doing things. But when you put industry first and foremost in this, you're basically sending a message that industry can do whatever it wants. Now, if you look at what happened with the OT, OTS, Office of Thrift Supervision, it, its mandate was to cover banks like IndyMac and Washington Mutual, or Thrift, should I say, both of which went belly up during the crisis 10 years ago. You do not want, as a regulator, to be seen to be kowtowing to the industry. Otherwise, you could precipitate some kind of crash. Either you allow them to get away with too many emissions in this case, or to be fair, but for GM, and I mean, GM's mantra at the moment is zero emissions, zero crashes, zero congestion as it pushes towards long term electric cars and autonomous cars. But for as long as SUVs are 80% of what these companies are selling, they're going to be in the short term, very, very focused on trying to milk as much money out of that as possible. And it's not the EPA's job to help them do that. It's the EPA's job to say, great, but you need to have a good target to get away from emissions in the medium to short term yeah. as well as long term. Okay, well, right. You just don't, you don't want to leave it to the companies. Leave it to the companies. It always ends up smacking you in the face. Right. All right. Thank you, Anthony. That's our show for this week. Kudos to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman, and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. 
Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.